This podcast is brought to you by MedTech Innovation News, the publication for professionals working in the UK and Ireland's medical device industry. Subscribe now at medtechnews.com. Hello and welcome to this episode of the MedTalk Podcast, the show that discusses the latest news and issues in life sciences. I'm Ian Bolland, the editor of MedTech Innovation News. Today I'm joined by Liz Ashall payne the founding chief executive of ORCA, the Organisation for the Review of Health and Care Apps. We discuss the organisation's report into apps that can be used for long COVID, the effect COVID-19 has had on digital health, and ORCA's role in bringing digital health innovations to market. You can read more about Orca on the articles and reports that accompany this podcast. Okay, but uh, Liz, first of all, thank you very, very much for taking part. Um, just uh, for those that don't know, can you give us a little bit of background about Orca and what you do? Yeah, of course. Um, thank you so much for inviting me to speak with you today, Ian. Um, so my name's Liz Ashall-Payne and I'm the founding chief exec at Orca. Um, I started my career as um, a clinician working in the NHS um, over 20 years ago, working in complex paediatric care and um, ultimately got interested in digital technologies because I saw um, the rise of digital health and health apps and saw the opportunity of being able to deploy digital health solutions to millions of people at the same time um, and that those people could then access that care whenever they wanted it. And that was really the trigger for the founding of Orca, because although um, we have this huge opportunity, so there's currently about 375,000 solutions, um, actually there are some real problems. The ultimate problem being people don't trust these solutions and therefore that's a barrier to adoption. So what Orca do, Orca actually stands for the organisation for the review of care and health apps. And we are all about reviewing approving and then distributing and activating communities to use digital health solutions. So in the same way that a doctor will prescribe a drug, they're using us um, to know that a product's quality assured and then to prescribe a digital health solution to their patient by a text message. Can we just uh, touch upon the review aspect in particular? Because I think it's fascinating, in particular in the COVID report, that you've yes. got... Um, you almost have percentages of you know how how and how in terms of how you score them can you give us a little bit of insight as to what goes into compiling all of that and and, and then arriving at final mark for it yeah, absolutely. It's extremely complex. I mean, if anybody who's listening wants to read the full document, they're very, very welcome to. It's about 75 pages long. Anybody suffering from insomnia, this is a great um, piece of um, document to read. Um, so what, what we do is is we've coordinated um, the ORCA review process. And the ORCA review process, what we've done is we've aggregated all the standards and reviews and um, digital health assessment frameworks on a global scale. And there are lots and lots of standards. And the first thing is you have to work out, well, which standards are in what domain area. And in the main, there are four big domain areas for reviewing digital health solutions. The first is around data privacy. So we will have all heard of GDPR, but there are new standards and regulations emerging in that space around um, uh, authentication, interoperability, verification, consent. So new standards are emerging in data 
privacy. We then move to data security. So this is where's the data held? How secure is that environment? What happens if the data is being pushed and pulled into different environments? The third and biggest area in the world of digital health is your professional and clinical assurance. So people may have heard of the medical device regulations. In the NHS, we have something called um, clinical safety. It's called DCB0129. And we have other um, uh, clinical domain areas such as the NICE evidence standard framework. So that's very rich, full of standards and regulations. And then the final area is around user experience. Um, and these are, it's a quite a lightweight area, um, but that's quite important as well as a user. If I, for example, have a visual impairment, I need to know that it's met those uh, regulations and standards in that space. And what we do at Orca is we then apply the standards and regulations and the frameworks in a proportionate way. So in the world of digital health, you've got um, some products that are highly complex, built on clinical algorithms that push and pull data. And you, but you've also got the opposite end of the spectrum, which might be a digital recipe book. So the risk in those products is very different. And therefore, the way in which we assess those products is also different. So the assessment process is a proportionate one. And more importantly, it's a repeatable one. So our reviews are not snapshots in time. They are re repeated every time the product updates and changes because if a new feature is incorporated into a product, then that might trigger more standards. So, um, and then you've, you've talked about the scoring mechanism. That's all detailed in that document, which I'll happily share a link to because that is quite complex, but it's basically a risk-based model. So um, if a product um, is built, for example, on clinical algorithms, it's a high risk if the product goes wrong from a clinical perspective, then the weightiness from a clinical domain area is far higher. Equally, if a product pushes and pulls data, has to be encrypted, it's been pulled into clinical environments, um, then the, the robustness and the, the um, uh, value associated with the, that application of the review in that domain area is also higher. So it's a very dynamic process. Yeah, um, thanks for sharing the science behind that actually quite succinctly, because as, as you said, it is, you know, there's quite a lot that goes into it. We've also mentioned trust already. Given the um, almost robustness of the process that you've got to go through to make sure these apps meet a standard, why do you think there is that gap, you know, that trust gap for users? So um, you touched on it just then, actually, and so it is complex and it's complicated. And I shared with you that I'm a clinician, but as a clinician, I'm not trained in knowing about all of these standards. So until I got interested in digital health and became a clinical safety officer, I didn't even know about that standard. Um, equally, most um, clinicians who are seeing patients won't have heard of the NICE evidence standard framework. And so that level of complexity means that if I want to recommend a product to my patient, I know I don't know about this area well enough to be able to make that decision. But it's also equally challenging for the innovator. This is a very complicated landscape. And so if you're a developer or an innovator wanting to create a new solution, how can you know which regulations and standards you need to consider at the point of building a product? So it's complicated for everybody. And I think that what that means is then adherence to or compliance with these um, standards and regulations is then maybe missing quite often and it's not because people don't want to 
go through these processes it's that they didn't even know that they had to in the first place and so what we do is we will review products and then work with innovators so that they know any gaps in regulatory compliance and then we promote that information to clinicians and end users in an easy to understand way so that they can then make an informed choice about which products are high quality and it's all about making it simple at at that point of recommendation or using a product. Yeah, the way you explain that there, it, it emphasizes that you're merely a partner when it when it comes to, uh, you know, uh, the, these apps. You're not a regulator in any way, and I think that can actually be easily misconstrued that you're, uh, given that you have voice and authority on the issue, you're a regulator, but you're not. You actually that you're actually offering a service to try and, you know, better the technology that's already out there. Uh, you're right Ian it's so important that we work together with innovators and quite often the innovator knows and understands the problem that they're trying to solve and doesn't necessarily know about all these regulatory compliance requirements and so we are really keen to work as you describe in partnership with the whole ecosystem because it's hard it's hard work but the opportunity in digital health is so exciting if we can get these products to be trusted and then deployed in a safe way, the opportunity on a health outcome and an impact is huge. And that's why uh, we're so passionate about working with innovators um, very closely and also with healthcare professionals to upskill healthcare professionals to build that trust so that they can then deploy these high quality solutions to people and patients. I'm going to come on to the digital health space alongside COVID, if you don't mind, because it feels at the moment it's hard to separate the two, but given the the impact that COVID's had in terms of accelerating the digital health trend, I mean, uh, you obviously know the market inside out before even COVID happened. I spent a couple of years writing about it before the pandemic came along. There were always these exciting technologies out there, but how how much do you think it's actually become you know, almost more mainstream as a result of the pandemic? Because I think you actually note in your report, it's over over a thousand percent increase in digital health apps, which is extraordinary. Yes, I mean, at the moment, we're seeing about 30 to 40 new digital health products come into the marketplace every day. So it's huge, the increase in digital health solutions available to us. However, the question isn't, is there a digital health solution for me or my patient? The question is, is there a good one? Because of that, those hundreds of thousands of products available to us, unfortunately, in an aggregated view, only 20% meet the quality criteria that you would expect. Now, some of those products that don't meet the criteria only need certain elements to be improved and then they can meet that quality criteria. But unfortunately, there are some very unsafe um, products on the market that people could be downloading. Now then when we look at well how many people are downloading these solutions well we've seen an increase of 25% since the start of the pandemic in people wanting to use digital health solutions. So we've gone from 4 million downloads every day to 5 million downloads every day and people are now actively searching for these tools because either they don't necessarily want to go and have face-to-face consultations or they're interested in supporting their health, physical health or mental health in a way that perhaps they weren't before the pandemic because I think 
think we're all now more aware, aware of our health and wanting to be fit and healthy. And I think we're all more aware of mental health challenges because of lockdown. So people are really interested. Now, what that, that population, who those population are, are really the people who are starting to become independently activated to use digital health and I can say I am one of those people um, but actually the people we need to really get to are the unactivated communities and these are people who may be more vulnerable who aren't aware that these opportunities exist and the way in which we get to those communities is through our trusted healthcare professionals so our doctors nurses therapists pharmacists those people who are having touch points with the communities we want to activate and that's why at Talker we work so closely with the healthcare professional community to get them activated so that they can activate the unactivated community by prescribing digital health solutions to their patients and at that point we see a 71% conversion rate so 71% of people receiving a text message a prescribed digital health intervention will convert and download and there we've seen six and a half thousand percent increase in recommendations and that's again because as healthcare professionals we've not necessarily been able to see our patients in a face-to-face manner so we now want to engage with our patients in a different way and recommending digital health solutions is absolutely up there you actually mentioned the uh 71 there and i know it sounds a little bit flippant of me to ask this but we've also talked about those that aren't necessarily engaged yet and it leads the obvious question how do you go about you know converting the other 29 percent yeah, no, it's, it's a really good question. So the first point to make is digital health isn't for everybody <clears throat> and it never will be. Um, you know, we're not all interested in digital health, but um, for those people who are interested, we need to reduce the opportunity gap. So for people who are interested in digital health, we just need to make sure that they're now getting access to high quality tools. We can then activate an additional chunk of people by getting healthcare professionals to recommend these solutions. And then for the people who aren't interested in digital health, what the recommendation of digital health does is it frees up capacity so that healthcare professionals can now see people more readily face to face and so it's a real win-win for everybody but the other thing just to know is on that activation number it might not seem that high 71 percent but actually on the prescription of a drug we only see 74 percent of people go and collect those drugs so actually on a conversion it's actually not that different to the conversion we see of people being prescribed drugs and and so um you know we won't ever see everybody doing what we're inviting them to do and digital health as I said before is not for everybody and by the way it's not for everybody and that's not based on an age demographic um, that's just a personal preference. It's, it's fascinating you actually mentioned the age demographics there because there, there is obviously the lazy stereotype that it's probably the you know the elderly that are probably the least trustworthy of this just because of the phrase, you can't teach an old dog new tricks. However, that disparaging that might sound, it's a really good saying at the moment for, for that kind of thing. Because, for example, I don't think it can convert my dad into using something like, you know, an, an app for all of his, for all of his uh, healthcare 
of his relationship with his GP. I think he's he's going to be one that will always prefer face to face. Yeah, and, and and I think that so what is really interesting there is some myths around um, older populations not wanting to use digital health. So in the most recent Ofcom report, the highest users of smartphone devices are age sixty plus. Why? Well, they've got time. So um, they're retired. Um, they're, they have more time. The second thing is who are most interested in health? People aged 60 plus because they want to look after their health because they get into an, a potential age where they might start to um, have some complex health needs. So there is a real myth. Um, the pe- you know, people who use wearables, Fitbits, who are interested in tracking their health quite often sit in that older age demographic. Um, the trust bit, you're absolutely right. That's where we need to get our healthcare professionals recommending these tools. And it's not just about recommending. We also then have to work with these communities to activate them to understand how to use these tools. But, Ian, as you say, for some people, they're just not interested at all. They'll always want a face-to-face consultation. And so what we need to do is free up capacity so that those people can always access um, a face-to-face consultation without having to wait. Yeah. I'm just going to come on to the, um, the report that you did into uh, long COVID apps or apps to help people with symptoms for long COVID because obviously the disease was on, is only known back in, where are we now? We're in April, so it's, it's 15 months ago was the first case in Wuhan. And so the concept of long COVID is, is newer than the disease itself, meaning there isn't a, uh, there isn't a, re- a real treatment there. From what I could see from uh, from the report that you put together, it, it seemed like a case of you've identified the symptoms, and here it's a case, and it's a case of here's what's already out there to treat that particular symptom. Uh, yeah, you, you're absolutely right. So that's exactly what we've taken. So um, you're absolutely right. Long COVID is basically a new long-term condition um, that that is emerging post-pandemic, um, and that's going to stay with us for quite a long time. We're seeing the evidence grow all the time about people contracting COVID and then having to live with long COVID, um, be it for six weeks, six months, or who knows um, the length of time. Now, what we did was we had a look exactly as you described at the the key symptoms that people are struggling with um, and looked at what's out there in the marketplace and what could be deployed to support people living with long COVID from stress to um, fatigue, um, to diet. Um, Now, what we're also seeing now is um, new innovations coming into the marketplace with a specific offering for long COVID. Now, as you can imagine, these products take a little bit of time to develop, but we are working with a number of innovators who will have new products to offer to the marketplace with a very very specific lens on long covid so those products are in development at the moment um, as as you know and as you said earlier on we work in partnership with those innovators to make sure that at point of launch they can be trusted that they meet regulatory compliance requirements and then can be promoted to the ecosystem and prescribed to patients who need them. Um, so there's a market opportunity here for innovators um, because there's a new need um, amongst us as populations. You've uh, you mentioned the um, the new innovators that are actually targeting um, 
you know, a specific lens on long COVID. But I, I think as the report identifies, that, that sounds easier said than done because your you apps actually range, in, in this report, they actually, they actually range from coronavirus advice, palpitations, you know, cognitive problems, depression, fatigue, insomnia. The, the list of symptoms it, it is quite vast. So tr- those innovators trying to get that kind of focus, it, it's an incredibly complex job for them. Yeah, you, you're right, Ian, and that's exactly uh, why they've not launched just yet. Um, but one of the, the innovators we've been talking to is um, a, a company called Dockerbode, um, and they've been looking at exactly what you've just described. How can you refine and offer modules of care depending on different symptoms and different relationships between different symptoms for people living with long COVID? Because as you, as you say, different people are experiencing potentially one of or two or three of 25 symptoms and the way in which they're experiencing those symptoms is it, it there's a different level um, of impact so you're absolutely right it's like a matrix offer um, but people are starting to work through um, what that offer is and then obviously in order to get that product to market in a trustworthy way being able to test um, you know using clinical trial methodologies to really understand what the impact is for which populations suffering with what conditions and what symptoms so so yeah you're right it is a complicated area um but what's amazing is we have these fabulous innovators who love to crack these these problems um, and work in partnership with key people and organizations across the system well, thank God we do, because otherwise we'd all be very, very unhealthy by the sounds of it. Uh, but I'll um, just to ask one point about that, given that obviously they've not launched yet. But I'm wondering how closely they've actually worked with researchers, those on the front line in terms of actually, you know, bringing all of this together. Because there's, even though they're actually trying to solve a matrix, as you put it, they're going to have to work with a lot of brilliant minds and very quickly to try and develop a product like this. Absolutely. I mean, um, most innovators um, and the good innovators do exactly what you've just described. They work in partnership. They work in collaboration. They work with people who are experiencing this problem, either as an end user or as a healthcare professional. Absolutely, research is key in this and that research is all about building evidence base and learning what the evidence tells you over time um so you're absolutely right and and what's really interesting is quite a few of the um uh, elements of review and regulation actually say you have to have that collaboration and that partnership working you have to have key professionals involved professional organization clinical um, advisory so it's it's a key part of the build if you want to do a good job and a proper job okay i'm not asking you to name names here by the way because i, I can imagine there are certain things that you can disclose and you can't but in a situation like this like you can imagine that um there are a couple of innovators that are coming at this from diff- different angles hypothetically speaking and this can be for other conditions as well do you since that you work as a part as a partner do you ever think of putting the two innovators together and asking them to work together because you think they might, might be able to crack it? 
So we haven't done that today, actually. Um, it's a really good question. Um, what we tend to do is we really understand the marketplace of digital health. So we have that helicopter lens to see what's out there in the marketplace. Where are the gaps? Where is there an opportunity for innovators? And then we promote that information out to the world of innovation to say here is a marketplace gap and here is the marketplace swamp so don't create more innovations where there already is a whole load of solutions here's the gap in the marketplace and we tend to promote that so we run um, monthly webinars um, normally with a specific lens. So we've, we've just um, run this last month, a focus on oncology. Next month, it's on mental health. Um, and we're all about saying, here's where we've got some great solutions. Here's where the gaps are. And here's where the opportunity is for further innovation. Now, obviously, we do provide um, support around networking. So if innovators wanted to work together, then we would happily do introductions. Um, but that is isn't really something that we we have done today, Tian. Um, but um, interesting for me to reflect on. Always happy to help. Um, can I, I'm just uh, thinking that <laughs> a few years down the line. I mean, if there wasn't a pandemic, you, you'd you'd have thought that what's happened now in the past, you know, few months would have taken, I don't know, probably to the end of the decade. I mean, is that accurate? Where, where did you see digital health going if there wasn't a pandemic? So if, if we take, I mean, the, the thing that, that happened with the pandemic was we didn't have an option of how to do things in a different way. We had to move to digital platforms as we're doing right now. You know, um, pretty much 100% of all my meetings became, um, you know, conference calls. Um, and um, you know uh, uh, online calls so we had we had no other option than to embrace digital health and I think pre um, COVID um, we were in a position where we always had the normal way of doing things which was face to face and I think um, the, the COVID has been a massive accelerant for digital, not just digital health, but digital at large. You know, I've never had so many online quizzes with friends and families. I think we all had to embrace digital in a new way um, to be able to live our lives. And what that's built is confidence in being able to use digital. And I think we've also benefited in a whole load of different ways. You know, um, I'm now able to travel the world in a day because just all from this office um, without having an impact on the environment, without having to spend a fortune on flights and hotel accommodation, and while still being able to have breakfast and dinner with my children. So there are some real benefits to digital that I don't think we experienced before. And that's what's happened with digital health. We've now experienced the benefits of digital health, which has now meant that people, patients and healthcare professionals don't want to go back. Now, if we hadn't have had COVID, would that have happened anyway? Um, it's always difficult to predict. Um, I think it would have happened anyway because we were all moving around um, so much more than we ever had done before. So, I mean, I'll use myself as an example. So I live with um, type 1 diabetes. Um, I have to have fairly regular consultations with healthcare professionals pre-COVID you know I wasn't always at home I was traveling a lot and actually for me having to have a face-to-face -face consultation was really quite an effort because I'd have to then reschedule all my other work um, to meet that appointment need so I think that digital was starting to 
disrupt um, the way in which we lived and the way in which we wanted to experience healthcare. But COVID has probably accelerated that that, that um, trajectory probably by about five years. There's still more to do. We're not there yet. Um, so what we've really done in, in the world of healthcare is we've digitised the way in which we work. So rather than seeing patients face-to-face, we're now seeing patients online. But actually there are some amazing technologies that we need to be putting into the pathway particularly around things like diagnostics so if I was your GP I can now see you online um, but actually if I needed to take an ECG monitor or I wanted to refer you on to dermatology or um, you needed a mental health intervention some of those services are either now have extremely long waiting lists Um, or aren't available at the moment. So I need to use some of these amazing digital therapeutics and digital health interventions to use as diagnostics and interventions so that you can now gain access to these these interventions when you need them now rather than waiting. So I think that there's still a lot more to do, um, but I think the genie's out the bottle. Yeah, you say the genie's out the bottle. I say that expectations have been significantly altered across society. I mean, I think you were an example. You're an example of uh, one person that has a very, very busy life, and it was very, very convenient yeah. for you to have, you know, remote consultation because you could still go about your business on the go. Whereas now, I think now everyone's seen it. That's it. Exactly. You're absolutely, and I think you know those expectations um, were emerging anyway. So our younger communities expect to be able to use digital. Uh, when I, you know, if I think about my teenage son, um, he will experience being with his friends by playing on his Xbox and FaceTiming them at the same time. That is a normal way of life um, for our our younger communities. That's just how they've been brought up. So they wouldn't expect to have to go into a a GP consultation face-to-face when they're so used to a digital interface. But now, as you say, it's not just for our younger communities. We all now expect and want that digital interface because obviously we have a risk of going into healthcare settings um, where we could potentially contract. Um, the coronavirus um, if we go into those environments and so we now have a different mode and we feel comfortable with that mode so you know you you commented on your dad um, for example my mum she now joins bingo online she has um, zoom conversations with friends she goes to um, she did a um, an an online zoom call where they watched um, horse racing together they had a day at the races you know she's 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 online a couple of times a day now um, and she lives with COPD she, she was very nervous about getting back to normality and mixing and still does have some of that fear so now she's happy with her online safe bubble uh, which means that she can still engage but not have to worry about the risk of contracting the virus I, I think the, you actually touched on a point there with uh, the lasting effects of people might even when going back to normal, as you know, restrictions are gradually being lifted in the UK. Even though you're you're probably seeing full pub beer gardens at the moment because the weather's nice, that doesn't mean that everybody's out. I mean, there's there's still going to be this reticence among many members of society that it gives another reason for for digital and digital health to to stick. 
Well, it's really interesting. So we um, we have contracts working in New Zealand and New Zealand, obviously, um, we're in a very different situation to to we have uh, to, to us and lots of other countries on the planet. You know, they only had lockdown for something like three or four weeks. Um, and what's really interesting when I'm talking to colleagues in New Zealand, digital has stuck and digital health has stuck even though they only had lockdown for four weeks so that stickiness as you said we have now all experienced this and our expectations are very different we now want to have these digital health consultations we now want to experience health and healthcare in that in our hands on our mobile devices we've the, the genies out the bottle our expectations have changed and it's interesting just to reflect where New Zealand are because they've obviously been out of lockdown for a long time but the world of digital health has continued to be expected and what is also interesting is even though they they've only been in lockdown for three or four weeks people have continued to work from home people have continued to use um, digital platforms to communicate and so I think that their lives have completely changed even though they didn't experience the length of the um, uh, lockdown like we have. That's a fascinating issue of culture change that you've reflected on in New Zealand. That I think we're going to see here as well because, you know, you you see videos of barbecues, full gigs, full sporting events, and and yet still they're having that, that digital experience too. Um, early on in our conversation, you actually mentioned the um, you know the vast amount of you know innovators coming your way. Aside from COVID and long COVID. What are the what are the apps or the hotspots at the moment, or what are the what are, what are the innovators really tapping into? So, um, big big area of growth is around mental health. So, and I think that you know we've been talking about the mental health pandemic for a little while, but um, even pre COVID, there was a huge explosion in the um, opportunity that digital health products presented us in with regard to mental health but the need has now grown exponentially so we've seen a massive explosion in people struggling with anxiety depression and other mental health conditions um, since um, covid you know research told us before we went into lockdown that post lockdown um, mental health conditions just absolutely soar and we're we're seeing that, you know. I don't know anybody um, who doesn't know somebody who or who hasn't themselves experienced um, anxiety and depression as a conce as a direct consequence of COVID. And when you particularly look amongst certain communities, particularly teenage communities, you know, anxiety, depression as a consequence of COVID has been massive. We've seen, unfortunately, attempted suicide rates or we've seen self-harm rates. Or, um, and so the opportunity that digital health presents is brilliant, but we have to make sure we're deploying the high quality digital health tools. So for example, we talked about um, the reviews that we do. We've reviewed thousands of um, digital health solutions in the space of mental health and on an aggregated view, around about 29% meet the quality standard. So we need to make sure people are at least finding the good solutions. Um, and so mental health is a big area of growth and a big area of need. We've mentioned the genie being out the bottle in terms of... Um digital health but I think it's the same goes for mental health as well because I think even pre-pandemic because we've seen a number of high profile cases of 
and people taking their own lives, for example, for example, because of their mental health conditions. And then lockdown has exacerbated people's mental health for certain reasons. Do you think, um, as a result, that the mental health space is is going to continue to to grow when it comes to digital health? So, I mean, we've currently got about, we currently have access to around about 22,000 digital health solutions in the space of mental health. So we've got this huge, vast opportunity already there. Um, and, and yeah, I mean, it's interesting um, just seeing your face. Wow, really that many? Um, and yeah, there is. And that, that's actually the first barrier to adoption. People didn't even know that these solutions existed. Um, and then the second one is, well, where do you go and find? I mean, if you wanted to find even the long list, if, if you said, OK, I want to find the long list, where are these 22,000? You might think, well, I'll go to the Apple App Store or Google Play, type in a word like schizophrenia, bipolar, depression, anxiety. You will get a lot of solutions. But how do you then know which ones are good? Because unfortunately, most of those solutions don't meet those regulatory compliances I was describing earlier on in our conversation. And that is the risk. If you're vulnerable and you then go to an app store or find a digital health intervention and it doesn't do what it says it's going to do, the impact could be negative. And that's the risk that we're in at the moment. So we already have access to a lot of digital health solutions the problem isn't do we have a solution the problem is which ones can I trust and which ones can I know that can help me or my loved one or my patient okay I'm gonna uh, have one final question before I let you go because I realize I've taken up a fair bit of your time today um it's a, a case of I'm, if I'm an innovator listening to this now what one piece of advice would you get would you give to somebody trying to enter the digital health space so um, the, if from an innovator's perspective, the thing that you've got to do is get obsessed with the problem. What is it you're trying, what's the problem you're trying to solve and who are you trying to solve it for? So take, take something like mental health. Mental health is huge. There's around about 17 subclinical condition groups within mental health. And then if you take something quite broad like anxiety, who is it specifically that you're trying to help? Because what a teenager needs versus a pregnant lady versus an adult versus an elderly person is very different so get really obsessed with refining who it is you're trying to help and how they're experiencing that problem and then the second thing is get really clear about what compliances you need to meet to be able to help people trust your product because trust is the biggest barrier those are my two um, top tips there's lots and lots of other tips that I would give we do actually have a document which is the top 10 tips for innovators which again I'll share with you so that anybody listening can access that sounds great Liz thank you very much for your time oh thank you Ian pleasure to um, speak with you Thank you.